Chapter 18 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 18 How Experts Do It. Franklin's only remaining course, so it now seemed to him, to make a profit out of Cordelia's information, the big profit of a great lawyer who was keeping safely within the law, was through direct dealings with Gladys. But he must be extremely adroit and cautious at every point. Not only was there the danger which follows inevitably when a lawyer makes a slip, but also Gladys was one of that select and lofty circle whose good offices it was his ambition to win and keep. He planned with mathematical care, checked up and proved his results, again wrote a skillfully phrased letter, and two days after the call of Mitchell, he received in his office another visitor from Rolling Meadows, this time Gladys. She was openly interested in seeing him. It is the instinct and habit of the Gladyses of this world to be interested in every personable man who is not too old and the worth of whose position is being countersigned and endorsed by excellent signatures. Also, she was flutteringly curious as to the business that brought her here. She did not venture so far as to be coquettish, but she made her best effort to be charming, for she now saw Mr. Franklin as a polished and able newcomer destined to an increasing popularity among her sort of people. Mr. Franklin made his approach with the slow and devious consideration of a doctor announcing leaky heart valves. He was gracious, then sympathetic, then apologetic, then self-deprecatory. The sparkle of Gladys's smile died out. Her face grew ashen, staring. I find myself in a most embarrassing, most humiliating situation, Franklin went on. Believe me, I would not touch the matter I am about to broach to you, were it not for the certainty that some other lawyer would handle the matter if I declined, and I feel that I can give you consideration and perhaps protection that you might not receive from another. So it is largely for your sake that I have consented to act in this affair. I dare say you have already surmised what the matter is that I am referring to. Gladys dared not trust her voice. She shook her head. I regret, then, that I must put so delicate a matter into words. Briefly, a person has just come to me with a most unfortunate story. An affair of the heart in wartime Paris, a child born out of wedlock, and everything most carefully concealed from the public. I sincerely hope you now understand, so that it will not be unpleasantly necessary for me to go into further details— also, this person has proofs, and threatens to make the story public unless—but you see what I am forced to lead up to. This person requires a price—a large price, in fact—in return for his part in keeping the story a secret from the public. Gladys attempted no denial. She sensed that it would be useless. Her green eyes were now beginning to flash vindictively. "'I know who the person is!' she exclaimed. "'Cordelia Marlowe!' She always has needed money. She knows this story. She told me you were her attorney. It's all as plain as day. The person is Cordelia Marlowe. His eyebrows went up in a surprised protest that could not have been more convincingly simulated. Miss Marlowe? I assure you, Miss Norworth, that Miss Marlowe has never breathed a word to me of this matter. Then it must have been Mitchell. He knows, and he's the only other person who might have told. Franklin hesitated for the briefest moment. Perhaps it might be as well to let her think Mitchell his informant. No, that would not be wise. Mitchell was too able and too potentially dangerous a man to be put in a false position. He might strike back, and strike disastrously. It was not Mitchell, he assured her. 
I can tell you no more than that my client, I presume I must call him my client, though I detest this business, and as I told you, am acting primarily to protect you. My client made it one of his first conditions that I should not reveal his identity. Then it's Cordelia Marlowe, Gladys cried with conviction. It's just like her. She's already used that story to hold me up. Here was an interesting matter for Mr. Franklin. Indeed, and how? She made me write a letter to Mr. Plimpton, not telling him that story, but the sort of letter that would cause him to keep away from me. But her reason for that? Isn't her reason plain enough? He was, was attentive to me. She wanted him for herself. She thought that driving him away from me would help her chances, and it most certainly will. It will send him straight into her arms. This was most important news indeed, a new angle to his situation, requiring most careful thought, most adroit manipulation. Looking into the angry, jealous face of Gladys, it occurred to Mr. Franklin for the first time that they two had a very large interest in common, that sometime it might be to their advantage to unite their forces. But his sympathetic face revealed no trace of this swift premonition. "'I assure you again that Miss Marlowe is not the person in question,' he said soothingly. "'And besides, the identity of my client does not affect in any way the real subject of this conference. This conference is necessarily limited merely to the matter of terms. I may say that I have no latitude as to terms. They were laid down for me in advance by my client.' "'What are the terms?' "'The essential requirement is that my client shall be fully protected. "'Very frankly, we both know that he proposes to practice blackmail, "'and blackmail has its very severe penalties when it can be proved. "'That you may not take this matter too hard,' he went on, again in his soothing voice, "'let me say that you would be amazed, Miss Norworth, "'if you knew the number of most respectable individuals and families throughout the country "'who are paying heavily for silence.' Really, there is hardly a family of prominence and wealth that is immune from such tribute. If you were in my disillusioning profession, you would realize how sadly true and commonplace this is. The skeleton in the closet, he permitted himself ever so faint a pleasant, propitiating smile, is the most expensive member of the family to support, and every family is supporting one. So you must not regard this situation as a personal disgrace— or as an unusual injustice that you are suffering. Again, I assure you that your experience is almost the common experience. Perhaps you're right, was her indifferent response to his last remarks, that others might suffer was no concern of hers. And then, with her former sharpness, Miss Marlowe, your client, in what way does she demand that she be protected against being found out? My client requires, for his safety's sake, that his identity shall remain unknown, that he shall in no wise personally appear in the matter. He has required, in case we finally come to terms, that all business be transacted through me and in my name. Very clever of Cordelia, I'm sure. He pretended not to have heard either the name she had used or her caustic tone. My client came to me with a plan which was thoroughly worked out. He requires that the affair be disguised as a legitimate business arrangement— with documents to prove its legitimacy in case trouble ever should arise. His plan requires that I become your personal attorney, in charge of all your personal affairs, with a very large annual retainer. This retainer is, of course, to be the sum which I turn over to my client as the price of his silence. I see. What sort of documents will be required? Two will be sufficient. The first will be a letter from you to me in your handwriting— in this you will say that you have heard of my ability as a lawyer, 
You will say that your affairs are in a very tangled shape. You will say that, prompted by your belief in me, you would rather like me to undertake the handling of these affairs, and you will ask for an appointment to talk over this proposal. The second document will be a contract, dated two days later than your letter, for my services for a period of years at a specified annual retainer, payable quarterly in advance. I suppose I'll have to agree to the documents. What will I have to pay? My client has figured that. Apparently, he knows how much you are worth. I suspect he somehow gained access to your last income tax statement. He figures that you have holdings valued at thirty millions, and that you have an income of about a million and a half, less, of course, your taxes. He will charge much less for his protection than the government charges for its protection. Sixty thousand a year for the retaining fee is the figure he fixed, which is about four percent of your gross income. Reasonable, he thought it. Sixty thousand! she gasped. Please remember that I am not making this figure. I am merely transmitting it, he apologized. Sixty thousand! It's preposterous! I am inclined to agree with you. On the other hand, again he smiled at her, a bit humorously, as if to lighten the situation for her. On the other hand, if I were acting for myself and not for a client, I might ask even more. More? she exclaimed. A very great deal more. How much more? To be exact, a million and a half a year less your taxes. She blinked at him and gasped again. How, how could you do that? His smile was disarmingly pleasant. I might tell you that the price of my silence would be your marriage to me. Very simple, isn't it? But pardon me, I did not intend to be led into a jest. She laughed in her relief. He joined in her laughter. At that moment, for the first time, it occurred to him that what he had conceived and suggested in fancy was highly practical and would not be a bad arrangement at all. Not at all, were his interest not elsewhere engaged. So you perceive, smiled he, you might be faced with a far more unpleasant demand. I suppose there's nothing for it except to agree. I think you are wise in saying that, though of course I am not approving my client's procedure. As a matter of fact, a new idea was coming to him. This arrangement may possibly have some slight compensation for you. As your attorney, even under such circumstances, I shall always be on the watch to serve your interests. She liked this man, despite this unpleasant business so obviously repugnant to him. I accept that last offer and shall count on you. Then that is also an agreement, said he. Neither of them guessed, in that brief interval of lightness, how important that half-jesting compact was to become to both of them, in the events toward which they were unconsciously sweeping. "'Is anything else demanded of me?' she inquired. "'Only one more thing. You are not to mention, not to hint, to a single soul that you are being victimized in this matter. My client has laid great emphasis upon this requirement. If it is broken, the penalty will be immediate publicity.' Having swallowed the camel, I guess I can down a gnat. I agree. And now I hope that's everything? Yes, but since we have reached an agreement, and you are here, we might as well take care of the mere formalities. It will save you another visit. In fact, I so far presumed as to believe that we would come to terms, and I have everything prepared, including the contract for my services. Here is the contract. Also, I have a little confession to make— the last time I was out at Rolling Meadows, I foresaw a probable emergency need for some of your personal stationery, so I helped myself to a bit of it. Here is a sheet and a fountain pen. 
Suppose we first get rid of the letter you were to write me, asking me to assume charge of your affairs. Just date it. By the way, just when did Miss Marlowe begin her recent visit to you? She came during the early part of June. That was about when I thought. Perhaps it will help us all. In fact, my client made a point of the matter. If we antedate both the letter and the contract a little. I will date the contract the 17th of May, and you will date the letter the 15th of May. Now for the letter. Perhaps it will be easier for you if I dictate the letter's contents. Already? She took down his words in her large, sprawling hand. The letter done, he handed her the contract, saying, Just glance that contract through. You'll find the terms exactly as I outlined, and you'll note that I've dated it the 17th of May. He himself glanced through her letter, most excellently drawn. Then he touched the button that signaled Kedmore, and on the appearance of his genial, porpoise-shaped partner, he introduced Gladys to him. "'Mr. Kedmore will help us execute our little understanding,' he explained to Gladys. "'Just a matter of form.' Holding out to her the letter written a few moments before, "'You identify this as a letter you wrote me some weeks ago?' "'I do,' said Gladys. "'Just glance the letter through, Kedmore. It is to be filed with the contract. Note that it is dated as Miss Norworth has just testified.' "'I see, I see,' nodded Kedmore. "'Dated May 15th. Everything in perfect order.' A stenographer was summoned from without. The contract was signed and witnessed, after which the stenographer was dismissed and the benign Kedmore withdrew. A delicate hint from Mr. Franklin prompted Gladys to write a check for $15,000, the first quarterly installment of the pseudo-retainer, and a few minutes later he was shaking Gladys's hand at his door. "'Remember, it was the best I could make out of a bad situation.' he assured her once more. And don't let yourself worry over this situation. I shall take care of you. It's an awful lot to pay, but... She grimaced and lifted her shoulders. Then she smiled at him. You'll not forget to run out and see me? Indeed I shall not. When Gladys had gone, he stood with check in hand, exulting. This was the way to swing big things. There were a lot of clever lawyers in New York who were on the lookout for choice bits of business such as this, but not one of them, not the cleverest of the lot, could have turned this trick as cleverly as he. And he was safe, covered, underwritten, guaranteed at every point. He recalled the day he had read Cordelia's advertisement and the day of her visit, and the quickness with which he had seen his rare chance and had seized it. How right he had been. Cordelia had certainly proved his long-awaited opportunity. What a distance he had traveled since he had deftly attached himself to her. Yes, what a distance, and yet he had only just begun to travel. Into his soaring mind there slipped the unease of what Gladys had said about Cordelia and Jerry Plimpton. Cordelia swinging Jerry toward her by the use of that extorted letter. He had previously taken note of the danger of this attachment, but what Gladys had told him made this danger seem more acute. Steps had to be taken. One could not be too careful. His quick brain became busy— he recalled that Cordelia had told him she had checked out the entire five thousand he had previously given her. That meant that she was again hard up. Another check was the thing. The more cancelled checks he had, the surer he would be. So he scribbled a note, full of more praise and gratitude, so phrased that she would have to regard the enclosure as clearly earned, and yet so phrased that the note would mean nothing to another person. Besides, he had advised her for her own protection to burn all his letters, and she had promised. Wrote out a check for twenty-five hundred, slipped it into the envelope, and himself went out into the corridor and dropped the letter into the chute. 
He was spending a lot of money, undoubtedly. But then one could not play for high stakes without putting a lot of cash upon the table. And in the end, the worth of his money, a thousand times its worth, was coming back to him, for he was going to win. For how can the man possibly lose, who, unsuspected by all, has loaded the dice, stacked the cards? End of chapter 18 Read by Lorraine R. Allen